continue in our Bible study in the Psalms. So we are at Psalm 140. Which means after tonight, believe it or not, only 10 Psalms to go. Many of you thought we would never make it here, but we have persevered and we have we are almost to the end of the psalms all right psalm 140 start with our summary statement here psalm 140 praise to the lord for justice on the wicked and vindication for the righteous So I'll go over that one more time. Psalm 140, praise to the Lord for justice on the wicked and vindication for the righteous. Uh, A simple outline for the psalm breaks it in two parts. Verses 1 to 8, prayer for deliverance. Verses 9 to 13, confidence for justice. Go over that one more time. Verses 1 to 8, prayer for deliverance. Verses 9 to 13, confidence for justice. All right, we'll go to our observations now for this psalm. So Psalm 140 was written by David, and you can see the superscription there, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. Uh, so the superscription ascribes it to him. Uh, it, is, it is very uh, David-like in character. Um, reminds us of quite a few of the earlier psalms in, in the collection uh, that are written by David. It is directed to the chief musician, the choir master, the leader of, of music, and again, using the term for psalm that uh, means that it's, it's meant to be sung with musical accompaniment um, in its original writing. As far as musical directions in the psalm, we actually have three selahs, which we haven't, haven't seen one in quite a while. Um, but we have three selahs here. We have one at the end of verse 3, one at the end of verse 5, and one at the end of verse 8. Uh, and just, um, just a, a reminder that... The actual meaning of that term is is something that's sort of been lost in antiquity, so it's not known exactly. Um, but but most likely, given the um, closeness of, of it to other terms and such, it's it's it is a musical direction, probably functioning something like a rest um, in in music. So uh, we have three of those in this psalm. There's no occasion that's given for this psalm, and certainly um, in David's life and this type of psalm, um, there's many different occasions that you could you could apply it to. But there's there's nothing, uh, no real indication in the heading or in the text of the psalm as to what the occasion was when he wrote it. So to categorize Psalm 140, it is a lament psalm, and that might seem odd. Um, or out of place as, as we're getting so close to the end of the Psalms and we think about that grand um, ending of the Psalm, the grand finale of, of the Psalms with the hallelujahs and, and all of that. Um, 
but it it does um, it does make sense. And, and again, in this psalm, this David group of psalms, there is there is movement um, toward that. So as far as being a lament, though, it does um, meet the normal conventions of a lament. So you have direct address prayer and petition for deliverance in verse 1. You have a crisis complaint in verses 2 to 5. You have an expression of confidence in the Lord in verses 6 and 7. You have a prayer of imprecations in verses 8 to 11. And you have uh, an expression of confidence and commitment to praise in verses 12 to 13. Now, as far as the minor elements of, of the psalm goes, there are a few. Um, one would be there's quite a bit of military or war imagery in the psalm. Um, also, there's a number of wisdom elements in the psalm, and particularly that reversal of wisdom. Uh, and you'll recall uh, when we talk about a reversal of wisdom, it, it is um, you know, someone essentially laying a trap and then being caught in it themselves. Um, that's sort of a, a wisdom reversal of, of justice or uh, uh, retributive justice um, that comes. It's, that's featured in Proverbs and in quite a number of Psalms. So we do have some of those wisdom-type reversals here in this Psalm. And then, of course, obviously would be the imprecatory Psalm. Now, Compared to some of the recent imprecations that we have seen, these seem relatively mild, but you still have to recall that a prayer of imprecation, it is a, it is a prayer for the wrath of God to come upon someone or someones, um, and in this case, the enemies of God. And, and the imprecations are not... Um, are not just a, a prayer of sort of like a payback prayer um, or a revenge-type prayer. Um, imprecations, and it comes out in this psalm um, very well, uh, imprecations are, are prayers for God to bring an end to them. It's, it's, it's permanence. It's judgment. It is the wrath of God to fall. That is what imprecatory prayers are. Um, also, this psalm is the third of this final David group of psalms. So uh, beginning in Psalm 138, uh, going to Psalm 145. So this is the third of this final David group of psalms. Now, Psalm 140 does have a number of connections with other psalms. Obviously, it does connect with the David group. And even that Psalm uh, 137, just before this David group, um, you see themes of affliction and persecution and opposition by enemies, um, imprecations, and, and that's going to continue um, somewhat in this, in this psalm group. And so it certainly connects right in um, with the flow of, of these psalms in this final collection. Um, but it also connects with some of the earlier laments, uh, like Psalm 57 and Psalm 58 and Psalm 64. Um, those those uh, laments in particular where enemies and the opposition of enemies is what is at the heart of the crisis in the lament. And beyond that, it does have a number of, of connections um, with a couple of early messianic psalms, Psalm number 18 and Psalm number 22. Psalm, uh, so the poetic features of Psalm 140, um, first of all, would be the structure. Uh, again, it's a very hymnic um, structure, uh, which is, is, again, very common in the, the David Psalms. 
So you have this psalm written in five stanzas, and the five stanzas are almost all of equal length, almost. Um, the first three stanzas are all punctuated with those selahs. Now, in the, in the psalm, you also have um, the use of repetition. Um, so you get um, references to evil and violent and lips and wicked, and then you, you see that in the beginning of the psalm, and you see it again toward the end of the psalm. You get a repetition of plotting or planning um, that's, that's used in the psalm and some other uh, minor repetitions. You do have quite a bit of imagery in the psalm. Um, you, obviously, the military warfare-type imagery uh, comes through pretty strongly. Um, you also have imagery of hunting um, or of, of trapping. Um, you have imagery of judgment. Um, and you also have a personification, and so uh, personification of calamity in this instance. So calamity is personified uh, at, like a hunter that, that, that's going to hunt down the, the wicked and, and destroy them, essentially. All right, so um, 13 verses, we will um, work our way through here, but I'll start by reading this psalm. Deliver me, O Lord, from the evil man. Preserve me from the violent man, which imagine mischiefs in their heart. Continually are they gathered together for war. They have sharpened their tongues like a serpent. Adder's poison is under their lips, Selah. Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from the violent man who have purposed to overthrow my goings. The proud have hid a snare for me and cords. They have spread a net by the wayside. They have set gins for me. Selah. I said unto the Lord, Thou art my God. Hear the voice of my supplications, O Lord. O God, the Lord, the strength of my salvation, Thou hast covered my head in the day of battle. Grant not, O Lord, the desires of the wicked, further not his wicked device, lest they exalt themselves. Selah. As for the head of those that compass me about, let the mischief of their own lips cover them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into the fire, into deep pits, that they rise not up again. Let not an evil speaker be established in the earth. Evil shall hunt the violent man to overthrow him. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted, and the right of the poor. Surely the righteous shall give thanks unto thy name. The upright shall dwell in thy presence. So verse 1 gives us this opening prayer for deliverance, and again, it's a direct address um, petition. Um, And and the petition here is for rescue, um, for deliverance, um, and for um, preserving, or the, the word there has the idea of, of guarding and, and, and keeping, setting a watch over, that, that sort of thing. Um, and the term that's used here for violent, to describe the violent man, um, it has the idea of, of violence, as we might think of it, um, cruelty, of um, wronging, of injustice, um, so just the sort of thing that we see as the psalm unfolds. Uh, verses 2 to 3 then give us the beginning of, of the crisis complaint, and really what we get is a continuing description of the violent man. The word for imagine that's used here is the word that it literally means to plate or to weave, like you might um, interweave various strands to make a rug or 
um, you know, to make a, a basket or, or something of, the, of that nature. Um, but it's a word that's also is used figuratively, and it, it's used for planning and for plotting. So this is the very same word um, in Genesis chapter 50 and verse number um, 20, Hasha, um, when it speaks, when David talks about how um, his brothers thought, that's the same word used there, you planned, you plotted evil against me, but God meant, and it's the same word used for God's actions, but God meant it for good. So it's a term that that speaks of the, the planning and the plotting, trying to bring about some design. Well, in this case, David is, ta- is speaking of those that are planning evil, that they are trying to bring about an evil design. And this word actually gets repeated in verse number four. Um, we're also told here that they conspire for battle. And so you have some military-type operations with evil intent that would be referred to. So this isn't, um, you know, this isn't petty. This isn't, this isn't just small scale. And, and as you go on reading, you can see the escalation. They are plotting the overthrow, the downfall um, of, of David. And then we get this um, comparison here um, to deadly venomous serpents, um, these enemies that are spoken of. We get references to tongues and lips, and those are um, those are obviously um, poetic ways of referring to their speech. Their speech is like the deadly venom um, of a deadly serpent. And so speaking against David, that is one of their tactics, slandering, false witnesses, false accusations, lies against against David trying to plot and to bring about um, his downfall. The last part of that verse there in verse 3 is actually um, the last part of it's quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 3 uh, verses 12 to 13 where he is is talking about man in, in his natural condition. Uh, James also um, when he refers to the tongue uh, and the sins of the, of the tongue he, he refers to it as as you know venomous um, uh, of what can be uh, much destruction from the tongue. Verses 4 and 5 then continue this crisis complaint. Um, verse 4 actually echoes verse 1 quite a bit. And we get this repetition here again of the planning and the plotting um, of David's downfall. And then we have this reference to them uh, in verse 5 of being proud or of being arrogant, which is, which is reflective of actually their their stance against God. They, they have risen up against God. This is why they're being described as proud and as arrogant. And, and, and we don't get the word used here, but we still get reference to plotting and planning because it refers to them as hiding snares, stretching out cords and nets. And in other words, they're laying traps. And so obviously implied in that is is the the thought of of planning and and plotting and if if um, you know if anyone's ever tried you know to trap some uh, animal or or something like that you know that there's there's at least some thought that that is going to go into it you know I need to to set the trap in such a way that it will catch the animal I need to you know bait the trap in such a way that it's going to attract the animal whatever that it is and and, and so on and so that so still we see that they're plotting and planning against David they're trying to. Um, bring about his downfall. They're trying to um, ensnare him. And of course, this sort of imagery then 
sort of turns the tables. Sometimes in the Psalms we've noted how that the enemies are um, referred to with um, highly, um, um, highly, you know, picturesque type of expressions that makes them like wild animals um, that are hunting down David to kill him. Well, in this case, this sort of makes David the prey. He's, he is the animal um, that is, is being hunted down. Verses 6 to 8 give us this expression of confidence. There's an expression of confidence in the Lord. Even though you've got this crisis and David had, there's enemies that are plotting and, and conspiring and laying traps and trying to bring about his downfall, but nevertheless, his confidence is in the Lord. So in other words, David's confidence is not in his ability to be smarter than they are in his ability to be stronger than they are or more crafty than they are to be able to escape their traps or avoid them or whatever. His confidence is in the Lord. And actually we get this confession here um, in verse number six. I said unto the Lord, thou art my God. Now that confession is actually a covenant confession. Um, and, And one way that you might think about it, and he doesn't use this imagery here. This was just sort of a, of a illustration that I thought of to, to try to capture the expression. Would, would sort of be like the marriage covenant between a husband and a wife. And so uh, a husband, you know, may pledge, you know, I take you to be my wife. And, and uh, a, a wife may pledge, I take you to be my husband and such. And so this is, this is what David's confession is here. Um, I said unto the Lord, thou art my God. It, it is a, an expression of that covenant relationship. Um, and, and so essentially, David trusts in God. David has taken refuge in God, and there is no other. So this means that um, he has no other help. He has no other means of rescue. Uh, you know, and, and, and it might be another way of saying that if, if the Lord doesn't keep me, I'll not be kept. You know, if the Lord doesn't deliver me, I'll not be delivered. Um, if the, the Lord doesn't hold me up, I, I will not stand. I will fall. Um, and, then, and then we have this petition to, he, to be heard. Hear the voice of my supplications. And we've seen this come up a number of times. It's very common in the laments. And again, it, it's that covenant-based prayer. There's a relationship there. There's an expectation um, that God is going to act in, in the way that David is, is requesting. And so he is praying um, to be heard, and obviously because of those promises that God has made to him. Uh, he also gives expression of confidence that God is the strength of his salvation, the, um, and God is the one who has covered his head in the day of battle. Now, the word for covered uh, means to fence or to hedge or to screen. In other words, God has protected David in the day of battle. But notice it's not just David, but his head that he has protected. And that is significant. And it comes up again later in in reference to his enemies. What does it mean? Well, the reference to David's head is an indication of his kingship. It's an indication of his position as the anointed by God. So this, so similar phrase is used in Psalm 3 and verse 3 when David referred to the Lord as the lifter up of his head. In other words, that's, that's an expression of exaltation to kingship. Um, verse, uh, chapter, uh, Psalm 18, rather, in verse 43, 
Um, he's delivered from those enemies that encompassed him and, and, and uh, tried to bring him to death with the cords wrapped around him. Um, he is exalted from that to be head over the goyim, over the nations. That's Psalm 18, verse 43. Psalm 23 and verse 5, his head is anointed with oil. And Psalm 27 and verse 6 he, he, his head is exalted above his enemies. And we could go on with this, actually, um, in, in the psalm. So again, there's great significance when David says that you have covered my head. You, you have protected your anointed one. You have protected the crown. You have protected the, the kingship. Um, now, David also asks that there, the desires of the wicked would not be granted. And desires is another term that's going to be sort of associated with their planning and, and their, their thoughts. These are, the, these are the things that they want to bring about. These are the things that they purpose. And so it, t- it tells us here what the danger is or what is at stake. And what is at stake is the wicked being exalted. So if, if God doesn't protect David's head, then the wicked will be exalted. In other words, they will come to rule. They will come to reign. They will come to power. And the same word that's used for exalted here in verse 8 is used again in Psalm 3 and verse 3, lifting up. The lifting up. When David said there, God is the lifter of my head, this is that same exaltation. Um, that word that's, that's used here is, is what is used there. This is their aim. So if their evil devices prosper, then the wicked will reign. And that is their desire. And of course, we get um, reference here to the, um, um, to, the, to the wisdom reversal. We see this coming um, here in the psalm. Now, verses 9 to 11 give us these prayers of imprecations. And again, you know, some of the recent psalms we've looked at and, and the, the, the strength of the expressions in those imprecations um, is very strong. But these are no less strong. It's just not put in the same terms. Again, this is a prayer for the wrath of God to end these enemies, to put a permanent end to them. That's what prayers of imprecation are. So just because in a couple of psalms or so, there's very, you know, graphic language that is used, that doesn't mean that, that these imprecations are any weaker or that, that they're really any less graphic. Um, it's just we don't perhaps think about maybe what all is involved in that. So David describes being encircled, being encompassed, surrounded, closed in by enemies. Um, same expression given in Psalm 18, 5, Psalm 22, verses 12 and 16. We talked about the connections, a little bit about connections there with those messianic psalms. And, and this wisdom reversal comes in. He wants their own, essentially for their own evil talk to come back on them. And he prays for falling, burning coals. And actually the language that's used here is very reminiscent of the description of, of God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah um, in the book of Genesis. Um, and here he uses this word for pits, and, and it's the only place that this word is used. Um, and there's, there's some ambiguity about as far as, as what the meaning exactly is, but it seems like it's something like bottomless pit or maybe even abyss. 
um, that, and so uh, could likely be uh, a reference to them being cast into hell um, or, or at the very least into the, into the grave and, and obviously by extension being cast into hell. So David prays for God's enemies that oppose him and his anointed to, to be ended, that, that they will not be able to rise up again. And we see similar to their exaltation in verse 8, verse 11 prays that they not be established in the land. And it's translated earth here. Um, it could, oftentimes it is translated land, um, and it is a significant here. They, they, David is praying that they not be established. In other words, that what's the, well, uh, think about it maybe this. Sometimes it, uh, it helps if you think about it in terms of what's the opposite. What's the, what's the alternative? Being established in the land, and what's the opposite? Being cut off from the land. And we've, we've seen that, that term show up a number of times in the Psalms. Not gain possession of the land of promise and rulership over it. That is the issue. And calamity here is personified um, as, a, as a huntsman, as a hunter, hunting down the wicked to bring them down permanently. And then we get verses 12 and 13, and the, this is a concluding expression of confidence. And the, the, it centers around God's justice. So the afflicted or the poor and needy, and we have seen this reference a number of times in, in covenantal associations, the afflicted and the poor and needy. Now, the, uh, the term for afflicted uh, would mean the, the humble or the meek, um, and you might even think of it as the, the weak. They're um, easily oppressed. They're vulnerable. They're, they're unable to defend themselves in, in many situations. And poor and needy generally refers to poverty. But again, as we've seen this usage in playing out in the Psalms, um, of course, this is, this is the, the, the category David puts himself in. Um, we've seen it in the Messianic Psalms. These are the prayers of the Messiah. He is poor and needy um, as he prays the Lord. So the poor and needy are, are those who have trusted in the Lord and they've taken refuge in him. In other words, they can't defend or deliver themselves. They, they're, they're trusting wholly um, in the Lord. And by turn, he will vindicate them. Um, and the righteous covenant members will praise or give thanks unto his name. And again, we've seen reference to his name and praising his name and thanking his name and all, all that sort of thing. And again, what, what, what is um, Yahweh's name? It is his security. It is the covenant security. He has sworn by his name because he cannot swear by anything greater. And so they, those, they will be established in turn. The righteous will be in, established in turn. The upright uh, and will dwell or abide or remain in the presence of the Lord. And forever is the implication. All right, so we'll go to interpretation for this psalm. Psalm 140 obviously teaches the sovereign supremacy of God. So we have in, in this psalm, much like in Psalm 2, um, we've got this continual plotting of, of enemies. They, they are opposing God. They are opposing his anointed. They're rebelling against his word. Uh, and there's just a continual plotting and stirring up and conspiring and, and, and laying of traps and all these sort of things. Um, they oppose God. They oppose his purpose in the creation. But for all that, but for all that, God will maintain the cause of his children 
and he will bring his purpose to fulfillment. So for all that, they're not able. And we might add here that, they, that these wicked conspirators, these wicked rebels, they are aided and abetted by Satan and evil spirits and um, his evil kingdom um, in this creation, seeking to wrest control of it um, from God and, and to bring his purposes to nothing. So God is the, is the protector and God is the deliverer of those who trust in him. In other words, you know, David recognizes that he is in a battle that is much larger than him, and it is much greater than his strength. And obviously, David was a mighty warrior. Um, David was such a, a bloody man, we're told, that God said, you know, you're not going to build a house for me. Your, your son's going to do it. David was a great and mighty warrior. Perhaps, uh, I guess we probably would say um, in, in Israel's history, the greatest warrior king um, that they had. But yet, when we read these, these laments, it, it almost seems like, you know, David is, is huddled over in a corner somewhere like a frightened child. Well, David recognizes that while, yes, he is a mighty warrior and, and he praises God in some of the Psalms because he has taught his, um, his, his fingers to fight and all that sort of thing, even though David is a mighty warrior, he recognizes that what's going on in, in the grander scheme of things What's going on is much larger than him and much greater than his strength. And so he is trusting in the Lord. Yes, he's taken up a sword. Yes, he's taken up a shield. Yes, he's taken up a bow and an, and an arrow and, and whatever the, that the case may be. But he also knows and expresses that sort of confidence that God is greater than the forces of evil and God will, will prevail. His purposes will be accomplished. Psalm 140 also teaches us God, something about God's perfect justice and, and what that justice means. So the justice of God means essentially two things, vengeance and vindication. So the righteous will be vindicated, which means not only rewarded, they'll have their trust proved to be true, that, that it wasn't misplaced, it wasn't misdirected. Those who have trusted in God, will have that trust vindicated. You have not trusted in the wrong one, in other words, whereas the wicked will have their trusts confounded, um, one of those great words that's used. So uh, the other side of it is that the wicked will not prosper, but they will come to an end and not rise again. Now, um, God's justice may not seem timely, and oftentimes our experience, which is what we've also seen in the Psalms, is that the wicked seem to prosper. They, they seem to be gaining ground. They seem to have greater strength. They seem to oppress um, God's people without any repercussions. But that's not always going to be the case. And, and when it's not the case, it will not be the case permanently. The righteous will be delivered. They'll be vindicated. Those who trust in him and the wicked, they will be condemned, and they will not rise again. It will be an end. And that's what these imprecations are praying about. Well, the messianic hope of this psalm is <laughs> so, so, so rich. Um, 
it is, it, it's seen particularly through David as he sees his life on this greater stage. So David was a prophet, and we, we've seen that time and time again. David was God's anointed king. David was also the one that God made a covenant with that God would raise up David's son to sit on his throne forever. So that means that David understood that events in his life were prefiguring his greater son. Yes, David was having these experiences. Yes, David was being hunted down. Yes, David was being um, encircled by enemies. But David also understood that it wasn't just personal, that it was an, it was an effort to bring God's purposes to an end, that, da- that David not have a son that would sit on his throne. So David understood how these events of his life um, prefigured his greater son, whom he called Lord, and he prophesied of him in the Psalms. So, so we step back and, and we think about David putting his, seeing his life in terms of this grander stage and grander, grander things in, in, in the universe and God's purposes. And so we start by asking, well, what's at stake in this psalm? In, in other words, what, what's, what, what's to be gained or lost in this psalm? And, and in this psalm, it's put pretty clearly. And we get those references to David's head and the land. Well, this means kingship and the kingdom. That's what is at stake in, in the grander scheme of things, not just in David's life. So God's covenant with Abraham, land, kingdom, and God's covenant with David, the king, kingship, were at stake in the enemies opposing David and plotting his downfall. And so David actually puts his crisis in cosmic terms, and he, and he does so um, through just ingenious use of, of, of Scripture imagery. So he speaks of his enemy in terms of the serpent, and he's drawing from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, and the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent in decisive victory. And so we get this reference even to the, to the head of the enemies. Um, and, and they're being covered with fire and, and brimstone, as it were. And then we also have these connections with those, those two messianic psalms, in particular Psalm 18 and Psalm 22. Being compassed about with enemies who laid snares, who sought to capture him in cords and to bring him to death, but only to be delivered and to be exalted as head over the nations over the goyim. And of course, we can look at this psalm, and, and even though we could say, well, you know, we can't really pinpoint a precise time in David's life, you know, for, for all, of these, all of these things, we certainly can see this um, being fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And of course, you know, it's, it's um, very convenient. We're, we're studying the Gospel of Matthew. Um, we're seeing these various ev- events in Jesus' life unfold, being, being, being enclosed, being surrounded by his enemies. And, and what is one of the, what's been one of their chief weapons that we have seen so far in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew? It's been their words. It's been their words. They've spoken against Jesus. 
And they are conspiring together. We've already encountered that. Uh, we saw that reference in, in Matthew chapter number 12. That they're taking counsel together. Not, not just how can we discredit him. You know, what's some way that we could really just embarrass Jesus and discredit him in front of everybody and humiliate him? No, no, no. How that they might destroy him. They're plotting together, we're seeing in, in the Gospel of Matthew, how they can end Jesus. That's what, they're, that's what they're plotting. That's what David's talking about here in this psalm. They're plotting evil against him. But ultimately, he triumphed over them, and he triumphed over them to sit at God's right hand, waiting until the day of the Lord to return to the earth and judge his enemies and establish his earthly kingdom. And that is when um, the wicked will be brought down and the righteous will be vindicated. All right, so we'll go to our applications uh, in applications, we just sort of we're just sort of asking, as modern readers, and we're reading this psalm, and so we understand what the meaning of this psalm is, that original intention of it, and and what sort of what what sort of takeaway do we have, and and what sort of help does it give us? Well, I've got two of these, and certainly could be more, but number one, understanding Psalm 140 helps us understand that we are part of a much larger world we are part of a much larger grander scheme of things than just what our little um, blip of life is on the timeline of earth's history well the troubles and the afflictions of life though they may seem to us to be random and they may seem to be meaningless they're not they're not and we are part of a much larger battle that is taking place on an unseen plane to us. We are involved in all of these things. Now, this, these troubles and afflictions, I mean, we know from the Bible, they come about, they're the result of sin. And they're also the result of the plotting of evil men against God. So there's assurance in a psalm like this that for all those who, like David, confess Yahweh as my God, there's, there's an assurance that th- this is going to end well. This is going to end with, with perfect justice. And this is going to end with the, the righteous being established and dwelling in the presence of God and the wicked being judged and not rising again. Number two, understanding Psalm 140 helps us understand that God is not unaware of anything that happens, no matter how small it might seem to us, no matter how trivial that it might seem to us. We don't know all the details of what happens and when it happens and why it happens, we, we don't know. Um, you know, you read the book of Job and, and, you know, we learn there that God doesn't give an account of his matters. In other words, we, we, we ask a lot of questions and we have a lot of questions. Uh, I have a lot of questions. I'm sure you have a lot of questions. And a lot of times there's not really answers for those questions not specifically and God doesn't doesn't give us that account and so we read a psalm like this 
and, and we can see how that David viewed his life through the lens of God's greater purposes. And God is, is playing those things out. You know, Paul gives us that sort of assurance in, in, in Romans 8.28. You know, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. All, all, these, all these things, God works all things after the counsel of his own will. He wrote in his letter to the Ephesians. All of these things work together, just like, just like Joseph as he stood there before his brothers. And, I mean, you know, uh, that, that's pretty bad treatment to receive from your brothers. And yet Joseph forgave them. And why? And Joseph said, I'm not in the place of God. He said, you meant evil against me. There's no question about that. You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. And I can, I can, that, we can see that playing out. So this sort of psalm helps us in that way. With God as the strength of our salvation, we don't have to be overcome with fear and overcome with worry. And we don't have to try to, to find how all of the little strands and threads fit together. We don't have to. Um, God knows what he's doing, uh, and God is doing it, and, and God is bringing this all um, to his determined end, and that is good for all of those who trust in him.